Welcome to the Train Right Podcast, presented by CTS, a podcast about furthering human performance in endurance sports. I'm your host, Hillary Allen. Former pro cyclist, Olympian, coach, and visionary entrepreneur, Chris Carmichael, founded CTS 20 years ago as the first world-class online coaching solution built to deliver results to pro and amateur endurance athletes. Chris and his team of 50-plus certified coaches are completely driven by innovation and catalyzing new levels of success for the thousands of athletes that they coach daily. Whether you're a pro or a dedicated time-crunched amateur, you're about to learn exactly what's working best today and what's not to get faster, stronger, and achieve your goals from the most experienced team of coaches working in endurance today. This episode of the Train Right Podcast is brought to you by CTS Coaching. Whether you're training for your first 50K or your 10th 100 miler, CTS has top all-terraining coaches who can provide you with the guidance, personalized training program, and tools to build fitness and dial in your race strategy for your best performance yet. CTS has coaches who all combined have run many thousands of miles and have towed the line in ultramarathons like the Western States 100, Leadville, Hard Rock, UTMB, and many more. Visit trainright.com coaching to get matched with the coach today. Hey there, and welcome to the Train Right Podcast. Today's guest is a special one, Dr. Alan Lim. Dr. Alan Lim received his doctorate from the Applied Exercise Science Laboratory in the Department of Integrative Physiology at the University of Colorado. Alan worked on the Pro Cycling Tour as a sports scientist and coach for the FENAC, TIA, CREF, Slipstream, Garmin, and Radio Shack professional cycling teams. More recently, Alan founded Scratch Labs, a bootstrap sports nutrition company that was ranked in 2014 as the third fastest growing food and beverage company in the USA by Inc. 5000. Alan has co-written three cookbooks with Chef Biju Thomas, The Feed Zone Cookbook, The Feed Zone Portables, and The Feed Zone Table, all of which can help give people the basic skills and knowledge to prepare real food from scratch as part of a physically active lifestyle. Alan has also served as a consultant for the Chinese Olympic team at the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta, for the U.S. Olympic cycling team at the 2012 and the 2016 Olympic Games in London and Rio, and for organizations and individuals ranging from the Joe Gibbs racing team, Kansas City Royals, and President George W. Bush. I'm really excited to talk to him today. I hope you guys are too. Hillary Allen. <laughs> Allen Lim. What do you want to talk about? This is amazing. You no, know, why don't you talk to me? You're the badass. No, you're I'm the invincible. No, but Alan, literally, I I think I learned all my like juju magic from you. Oh, thank you. It is about the magic, you know. Ninety nine percent bullshit, one percent pure magic. You live for the magic. You try to at least. <laughs> Or at least you reconcile with the fact that if you're an endurance athlete like yourself, that you actually do love the challenge. You love the process. It's not about the reward. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. And if you're going to enjoy the journey, you're going to have to embrace the suck. Oh my God. These are like my mantras. I remember like exchanging when I was like going through a whole slew of injuries and we like sat at this coffee shop across the street from your house. Cause I was like, 
staying at your house because I couldn't like stay at mine. I couldn't like, we would, like, you would like help me up and down the stairs. And like, we had this journal and we'd write down mantras and like positive outlooks on life. And I think exactly like you just said, like the 99%, um, what is it? You'd live for the 1% magic. You just, you just. Yeah. 99, one, 99%. 99%. You have that tattooed on your, and it's apparently it's at the, the Seattle airport too. on the sticker. <laughs> did you see it? Yeah, yeah. I did. That wasn't me. Yeah. Um, you know, here's the, here's the thing is like, I think that, um, our brain doesn't know the difference. Sometimes a, you know, positive lie can be better than a negative truth. Yeah. That's maybe politics today. Actually, <laughs> uh, yep. you know, you, you do, you have to have a positive mindset. Um, it's not always easy. You got to find ways to take care of yourself in the moment. We are all interested, I think, in big, grand things. We're all dreamers. Uh, but it's not always easy to sustain, especially if you're just, you know, just beating on yourself all the time. Yeah. You got you to gotta, you gotta have at least some semblance of, of self-care, right? And a lot of that self-care is just whether or not you're treating yourself kindly both physically and emotionally. Yeah. Yeah. But for, for an endurance athlete though, it can be kind of hard or an athlete in general, but I mean, cause you're, you're constantly beating on yourself physically. So that's yeah. like kind of the name of the game. And so, I mean, where do you see your role? Because. Well, I see my role as being the voice of reason, the guy who tells you to um, stop the microwave because you have plenty of popcorn, right? There's this kind of greed that we have. We put this bag of microwave popcorn in the microwave and the instructions are fairly vague. It's like on high until frequency of popping, you know, slows. And then you smell all this great popcorn. And then the frequency starts to drop a little bit and you just want like two or three more kernels to be popped because you're greedy. And right before you stop the microwave, you smell the inevitable stench of failure. <laughs> that popcorn starts to burn. And the thing is, is that everyone around you knows it because they walk into your apartment and they're just like, oh, you burnt the popcorn. Right? <laughs> and you're kind of in this mode where you're just like, I didn't burn the popcorn. It's fine. Oh, it's so <laughs> you know, and that's the thing is like, you, it, once you get to that point where you're burning the popcorn, not only can you not resurrect that popcorn, right? Yeah. You're, you're, you're almost happy with like the 30% that is actually useful when you could have had 70% and just called it quits before you got to that point where you're beginning to burn. So I think that the nature of it is what I've always seen. It's about consistency and it's about the long haul. If, adaptation requires you to cross this line that is say like a seven and burning your popcorn is this line that is a 10. Well then stay between seven and 10 all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what we tend to do is we like cross over to 10 and we have to recover and take more time and reassess our life choices. And then, you know, we end up kind of, you know, it's just basically slapping ourselves in the face a little, a few times too many where, just that consistent adaptation, that consistent chipping away for the long haul, I think is, is what's really, really valuable. And, you know, Hills, you love being active. You're really good at that because 
I think that a lot of how you approach your training from what I've seen outside looking in is that you're out there playing. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. I love it. It's so much fun. I remember some of these like cruiser bike rides that we'd go on in Boulder. I'd just like meet your random friends and just like, just skid bikes and go around the bike park. (laughs) Yeah. Always in motion, right? Always in motion. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's like, I mean, I think there's, there's like a couple parts of self-care, like obviously the nutrition aspect for an athlete. I think that that can be, uh, like, I know you've talked about this to me many times. Like people ask you nutrition questions because you've written several cookbooks and you know, you, you own a nutrition company, obviously. I mean, you're, you're also PhD in physiology. Like, you know, you know what, how your body functions, you know what it needs, yeah. But people ask you, okay, well, like I, what should I eat? Like what's, you know, what's the best thing? And you're like, well, if, if it makes you feel bad, then you probably shouldn't eat it. But like, <laughs> yeah, you know, when people ask me that question, I, I understand that it, it revolves around performance. It revolves around optimization. There's a lot of knowledge to be learned and you need to be a student of your, your sport. You need to be a student, your own play. That being said, you know, when grown adults ask me what they need to eat, I kind of look at them sometimes and I'm like, and you made it this far? <laughs> like, really? What did you eat yesterday? Are you hungry? Do you need some meat now? Do you need me to make you something? You want chicken fried rice? You know, like, what's the deal? And I think that what's interesting is that it's important when we think about nutrition to distinguish between two halves of nutrition, um, two halves that can be pretty contradictory to one another. One is the technocentric half. And this is where science comes into play. And, you know, obviously this is something that I've invested a lot of time in, Mm. but the technocentric side is a side of science that is fairly reductionist, right? Where we reduce a food into chemicals, into carbohydrate, fat, proteins, into micro and these macronutrients, water content, caloric density, you know, chemicals, whatever. And we start assigning, you know, purpose or value to these different foods, effectively grading the quality of, of, of all these different nutrients. But there's also an ethnocentric side to eating. And the ethnocentric side is a cultural basis. It's, it's a it's it's based on ethnicity, it's based on region, it's based on what's been handed down to you. It's effectively what Michael Poland describes as culture being what your mom fed you right (laughs) yeah and so you know if i go home and i visit my mom and she makes you know an oxtail stew um i'm not going to sit there (coughs) and begin to reduce what that oxtail soup is or stew is i'm going to put it in my mouth and be like oh my goodness this is so freaking delicious yeah yeah kind of hold myself back so that when I am, you know, satiated, not necessarily full, I stop eating. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I think that human beings for most of our existence have eaten in an ethnocentric way. Mm -hmm. And that 
the reason why maybe today we see so many different diet types and so much confusion around diet is that we are part of a culture that likes to innovate, that likes technology, that likes to reduce things, that is invested in science, and that has a lot of different influences. And so we don't have a well-defined food culture, right? And we have access to foods from all over the world. And we have a physiology that is extraordinarily adaptable to so many different things our bodies are built for survival and so if someone tells me that they have committed to x y or z type diet it's hard for me to say if it's optimal because i know that there is some adaptation that will 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 occur that even if those adaptations are on one far side or the other they might be advantageous for some situation or some purpose Mm -hmm. so what do you eat i don't know like you said, you eat what makes you feel good. You have to be self-aware. Um, you don't eat what makes you feel like shit. You have to be self-aware. And most people, when they're pressed, they they know what makes them feel good. So if you were to come to me with $1,000 in your pocket, I would take out two pieces of paper. One piece of paper would say, write down all the foods that make you feel like shit. The other piece of paper would say, write down all the foods that make you feel great. You'd make this long list. You'd pass over the money. I would take a look at this list. And I would start making sounds that that showed my interest or intrigue. Uh, I call them the, the, the sounds of my PhD. Uh-huh. Interesting. I see. Hmm. Uh-huh. Whoa. Mm. Uh-huh. And then the little scratchy of a pencil on that paper. And then I would write in big letters on the piece of paper that lists all the foods that make you feel like shit. Don't eat these foods. And then on the other sheet, I would write, eat these foods. <laughs> and it's up to you to feel if you're swindled or not swindled. <laughs> um, but, I, I do, but I do think this, when, when I do that with people, and I do that with a lot of people, I do see that there are a lot of individual preferences and that, you know, for whatever reason, maybe because of hygiene, maybe because we don't live on farms, maybe because, you know, we're freaky deaky and, you know, who knows, people do have a lot of intolerances and they do have a lot of allergies and that there are a lot of issues and that there are a lot of beliefs about what makes you feel good and makes you feel bad. And if anything, maybe the absurdity of it is that I have found that it's harder to change how somebody eats than it is to change their religion. (laughs) So why the hell is everyone asking me? (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of, Uh, no, you're, you're actually right. It can be like, I've, I've gotten into some, well, I've witnessed some heated debates over that kind of stuff, but I mean, we've had talks about nutrition before and it's always, I think it's always been, I've always had a very balanced, uh, balanced view of it. Um, yeah, yeah I've seen you put almost everything in your mouth. What? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> especially at dirty Kansas. I mean, yeah, especially dirty Kansas, and especially because you do travel a lot and yeah. with the, all the travel that you do, you don't necessarily, you can't necessarily afford to be picky, especially if you, if you need to keep going, right? Exactly. You need to be constantly in motion. Yeah. And I always like that because I think, and I think it makes for whether this is true or not, but a strong microbiome. So um, I can, yeah. yeah, I don't know. 
I think it's very yeah. Resilient. You have to be you have to be in the world that you live in, open to uh, different cultural mindsets about food as well. Yeah. Right? Otherwise, you become that ugly American. No one wants that, especially here in France. I mean, yeah. Exactly. It's actually really cool here though, because they, I mean, talk about like farm to table, like literally I went on a bike ride today and I went by this farm. That's like my favorite farmer's market that is, you know, happening tomorrow, Friday morning when I, you know, so yes, that's really cool. I can eat the chickens. And here's the thing about France. Let me ask you this question. What? When you're in France, how often do you eat alone versus when you're in America? Um, yeah. Okay. So when I'm in America, I probably eat alone mm, 75% of the time Okay. in France. France, It's like, I don't even know, 20%, maybe less. Like you're always eating with people. Yes. Always. So the French have one of the most commensal uh, cultures in the world and, and, and commensality is this word that describes the act of eating with one another calm latin with mensa table itty the act of the act of being with or at the table with somebody commensality is probably the tip of the iceberg when i look at whether or not somebody is eating well mm. and if i were to ask kind of one question how often do you eat by yourself that's probably the tip of the iceberg right that's probably the the kind of you know, flag. And what I can tell you is that I bet you eat a lot better in France than you do in America. Um, 100%. Like that's one of the reasons why I have like been back and forth, um, and like lived here for, for, you know, on and off for so long is because it is, it it feels like, it feels like, um, I don't know. It just, it feels like a family. Like you're, you're just constantly eating with people and, and the way that they eat too, it's not just like all the food at once. It's like a little appetizer, like an aperitif. And then you have like your wine if you want to. And then you have this one dish and then you have another one. And then every single meal you have like something sweet. It doesn't yeah. have to be big, but it's just like, they always have dessert. You have the company, you have the conversation, and you have the slow roll with respect to the, the pace of the meal, which changes your satiation cues. Yep. And That's it. The slow roll, for sure. Yeah. And you, you might start sitting at the table hungry, but you know, with the first few bites, you're not hungry anymore, mm-hmm. and you're not gorging yourself. And so, yeah, weight control is much easier, the, the, the whole entire thing. So let me ask you this. You're, you're a chemist. You understand chemistry. Yep. Which is more important, the chemical fuel or the social fuel? <laughs> you know, actually, I was just about to segue into that because in my opinion, I think, I, I think some of the demise of um, like the obsession around nutrition or, I mean, obviously you need, to, you need to be scientific. Like when I go into a race, like I know I need X amount of calories per hour, what works for me, how long I'm going to be running. I need yeah. to, you know, dial in my hydration. I know that that's like an aspect of it. But if yeah. I want to be healthy and have nutrition, like if I think of nutrition on the global scale, like what, what like fuels me day to day as an athlete, which is basically the majority of what it means to, to live and train is because a race is one day. Your training yeah. is like 99% of the time. Yeah. It's the social and it's what nutrition means, not from the chemicals you're putting in your body. I say chemicals like carbohydrates, fats, proteins, but like that, like the soul food, 
I think is way more important. If I'm a happy athlete and eating well and a balanced diet, yeah, like, yeah. that's more important to me than like writing down the nitty gritty or like the actual, like, right. you know, breaking right. things down. That's right. Chemical fuel, social fuel, nutrition versus nourishment. Yeah. Ooh, there we go. The nourishment. Yeah. And I yeah. think you want to be yeah. nurturing. Yeah. And I think that's what, that's what like is, that's what sustains people more long-term. And I yeah. think, um, I mean, specifically like through, through, I think injury and also through just kind of like when athletes like hit a wall or people hit a wall, I think it's because they're neglecting the nourishment side, which is far more than following a particular diet. It's, 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 it's greater than that. And I think like you helped me discover that. And I think that that's like your role. Like for instance, when you helped, um, these various cycling pro teams, like, you know, you're, you're there cooking for them, but I think you also provide something way more than just the nutrition aspect. Well, you give people a reason to get together, commune, be with one another, you know, uh, it's, it's a time where you can actually hold oneself accountable through conversation and remind one another what we're all in it for. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I think that the act of eating together can translate to working for each other. Right. Which is really, really yeah. important, especially in a sport like cycling, but it's important in society as a whole. And this is obviously all super complex stuff. But I think that there are true physiological ramifications, which brings me to the Framingham Heart Study, right? Looking at the correlates to heart disease. And obviously, you know, smoking is one of those correlates. And the Framingham Heart Study was one of the longest longitudinal, you know, studies looking at um, heart disease and well-being in uh, American culture. Um, Yeah, smoking. But it's a smoke. One of the highest correlates to heart disease was self-reported loneliness. And whether or not there's a cause and effect or chicken and egg maybe is a moot point. It is a really important correlate. There is, I think, an epidemic of that loneliness. And you see that loneliness in reports of how frequently people eat alone. Mm -hmm. And while cigarettes come with a warning label, loneliness does not. And maybe we need to start putting that sticker on. I mean, and I think it's also just a difference in culture too. I mean, I've noticed just from traveling in Europe and um, racing in Europe, it's just, I mean, everything's smaller. I mean, you just, you, you kind of just can't live your life without like living communally. And that's very, a stark contrast to a place like the United States where everything's so spread out. You need a car and like everyone's house is kind of like, it's, it's their home is kind of separate and in, in their place, their little yard. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Why don't you join? Wait, what? I said, why don't you start a little cult? <laughs> a little cult? Where in France or the U.S.? No, but consideraries. And I think I think it's funny. It's like my um, even when I was at home in Boulder, like um, one of my morning routines was to go have breakfast because I would live alone. It was to yeah. go have breakfast at Spruce Confections. It was my favorite coffee shop because I could go have coffee. And you see and the same faces there every morning. I'd see the same faces. And it was like, we had, like, we'd exchange our little pleasantries and, you know, sometimes I run into you, but it felt like a little community, you know? And, yeah. and those, natural, those natural interactions 
even if you don't know them, but you feel recognized, I think that they are really important. For a while, before I really got into the the pour-over thing, I was going to school every morning. I think I was paying my, you know, three to seven buck tax just so that I could be acknowledged as being alive. Yeah. You know, because oh, it look yeah. maybe like Cafe Ole the Ethiopian roast, and I'd be like, yes, yes. And even <laughs> if I got my drink order wrong, the fact that they attempted to know what I wanted was great. And so I'd never argue the point. I'd just be like, yep. yeah, yes. Yep. Whatever you want to give me. I would yeah. Take like, I remember that. Like, sometimes it'd just be like, I was just in Boulder, and there, yeah, this guy was like, oh, and he recognized me. He's like, you take the, the lighter roast. And I just agreed, even though I like... I didn't, but like, I don't care because it was nice to feel recognized. recognized. Yeah, no, I think it's just interesting because um, I just, I think we forget like how important that is like as human beings, but how that translates into overall health. And, you know, I think athletes are, they can become overly concerned with the minutia, but really we have to look at it kind of like just an over this overall big kind of not goal, but just self-care, I think. Like right. nourishing right. as a whole. Let me, let, me, let me ask you this question. Yeah. Because life is ultimately what you do every single day. The quality of your life is is what happened yesterday, right? <laughs> and the little things that you need to do every single day to keep yourself healthy or well. So what are the top five or ten things that you need to do every single day? To maintain your quality of life. Am I supposed to answer? You're supposed to answer. And then I'll tell <laughs> you my answer. I, I want to hear your answer. Okay, first. my to maintain my quality of life, um, to get outside in whatever capacity that is, whether it's running, biking, skiing, like I motion. absolutely love that. Just motion. motion. Um food. That's also another thing that I enjoy. Okay. <laughs> um, and are you a breakfast, lunch, dinner person or you know, do you eat according to your activity or do you sometimes fast? Do you, what do you, what's your, what's your, what's your kind of um, day in terms of food, perfect food day? Usually I just eat according to like activity and how hungry I feel. So I think that, that ebbs and flows like certain days, like today where I ran more, like I feel hungrier. So I try to, I try to listen to that or on other days, if I feel like a little bit, like I'm not doing as much, I naturally just don't have as much of an appetite. Um, yeah. So yeah, I try to stay in tune with that. The only exception to that is probably like a taper week where I'm training, where I'm like trying to prepare for a big race where it's just like, okay, I know I have to fuel well for this race. <laughs> um, yeah. So, but I mean, I'm, again, I'm not like overeating. It's just, um, yeah, it's just something like that. Um, and then let's see, number three, yeah. for me, it's really important to laugh and to smile because that's something that it just makes yeah, it just makes you feel alive, and it just makes me feel yeah. Um, and uh, pillow fights, tickle parties. What do you do? Pillow fights, tickle parties. Um, no, uh, but like also like little little bits of community. Whether it's just like having a good conversation with a random stranger, like saying hi. Um, oh. You know, spending time with the people that I love. Like that's yeah. that's pretty important. Um, yeah, being able being able to do that, I think maybe that like you know that spans too. But really, quality time is a really important thing. So quality time and um, like time with people that I love. Yeah, nice quality time. That's a love language. Yeah, because.
because it is, it's totally mine. But like, yeah, because I, I think if I, like, oh, like I think back to yesterday, I was like, oh yeah, yesterday was a great day because like I felt like I got to get outside. I got to, you know, I got to see Bastion and I got to see, I got to like, you know, eat good food here in France. Yep. And for people who don't know, Bastion is your lover. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> we shouldn't include that on this, but okay. Yeah, like, like the cat is out of the bag, Kells. <laughs> Mom. Wow. Yeah, there we go. But like, it's like a little piece of home, right? It's something that makes you feel connected. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I got to like, I, I was just in a goofy mood last night and I just remember just laughing and like over nothing and literally like falling on the floor. Cause I was laughing so hard. Like it was a great day. <laughs> yeah. So what are yours? Well, let me tell you something Hills at 17, I started to start myself. I thought that love was a kind of emptiness and at least I understood the hunger that I felt and I didn't have to call it loneliness. We all have a hunger. We all have a hunger. Yes, that's my story. That's Florence and the Machine. Come on. You were reading something I could tell. I just didn't want to give it away. Florence and the Machine is uh, insane. Yeah, but those lines are actually really pretty profound, right? Yeah. That, um, the emotionality around it. And so for me, it, it's interesting because first and foremost, um, I need to sleep. And if I don't get enough sleep and if I have to wake up early with an alarm, I can rally for a little bit, but eventually I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pay the price for it. And I wouldn't even say that I'm going to pay the price for it. Someone else is going to pay the price for it because I'm probably going to be a moody bastard. Yeah. Right. And that's not good for anybody. And what I tend to notice is that if I don't get enough sleep, if I'm not really alert or awake, then I, uh, I tend to function below the line, not just with myself, but with others. Right. And so I can be really, really nasty. There's this part of my intellect that turns into like, I'm going to tell you everything that is wrong. <laughs> Rather than, you know, uh, it's really weird, right? It's like that, that line between optimism and pessimism for me is, is, is wholly about that sleep and that fatigue. You know, I like to think that we can go from our beliefs to our behaviors and feel good about them. But once you're tired, you start to go from your feelings to your behaviors and question all your beliefs. So that's I've experienced up. that before. What is that thing that you told me? Like, oh, halt. Mm. Yeah. Halt. Lori Ventura. Uh, you know, she's got five kids and I'm like, how do you do this? And she's like, it's all about halt. If something is going wrong, if there's an emotional upset or a breakdown or things just aren't working, I tell my kids to halt. And then I ask them, are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you lonely? Are you tired? And then you just start solving for them. If you're, if they're, if you're hungry, you eat. If you're angry, you hopefully just talk it out or, you know, try to assess what the issues are or the real issue are and discuss, maybe even solve. If you're lonely, you know, you get in a big cuddle puddle, invite <laughs> some friends over. I don't know. Go 
find some puppies. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. Actually, I think that, that we do have a hard time reaching out to people, um, asking for, for help or asking for company can be very vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, but that's important. And then finally, if you're tired, you just got to call it and you are distracted. It's easy for me, for example, to go down the rabbit hole of YouTube. I learn a lot of crazy, unnecessary, useless shit. <laughs> it keeps me up because you just go from one video to another video to another video. Yeah. Yeah. So you got to go to bed. You got to go to bed. Uh, halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It's yeah. uh mantra. And yeah, that, you know, eating when I'm, I'm hungry, not eating when I'm not hungry. And so I've given up, uh, except for the social context, I've given up this idea that there's supposed to be a breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm. Right? Um, and I will tend to always accept meals with others. Mm. If they want to have breakfast or they want to have lunch or they want to have dinner. It's at that point that I decide, you know, okay, I'm going to have this meal. This will probably be a bigger meal for me. And the times that I'm alone, I tend to not eat that much, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, so I tend to graze when I'm by myself and the only large meals that I have tend to be with other people. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what else, what else do I do? Um, I do need to exercise. And here's the thing is that I'm fairly inconsistent when I am consistent, I gain a positive momentum when I'm inconsistent, man, is it freaking hard? And so I think that one thing that I've learned from my brother is that you can always walk and he is like a fiend when it comes to steps. Like he is just obsessed with steps. And like we were in Germany and we were staying at this hotel and he was having a conversation with me and I was like laying in, in bed and he was just like literally marching in place. And I was like, what the hell are you doing? Why are you doing <laughs> so annoying? And he's like, I'm getting in my steps, man. <laughs> But it was great. I was like, yeah, I need, I probably need to be marching in place too right now while I'm having this conversation. We'd be marching in place, looking at each other and talking. And I, that would actually have been the more rational thing, as ridiculous as that would have looked. Oh my God, that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Those are little things, you know? Those are little things. I've given up on showers or hygiene. I just, I'm oh, done with yeah. hygiene too. This usually depends on my motivation level. Sometimes I'm just like, (laughs) it it can be a really good form of self care if we were talking about that. But yeah, not a priority anymore. Sometimes I just, I don't know. I just, I just don't. My priority is sleep or like eating. (laughs) Like I'd rather just not shower. (laughs) That's right. That's right. That's right. You know, the last thing I do, Mm. even though I don't really uh, worry about my own personal hygiene, except maybe brushing my teeth, Mm. is I do try to vacuum every day. Yeah, it's incredibly satisfying. And sometimes it is the only productive thing I do. No, I don't believe that. Yeah, seriously. Like, because a lot of things I do are babes towards big or bigger projects, and they don't feel tangible because you're uh-huh. living in, in, in a weird space. Yep. Uh, especially if, like, you know, I'm trying to research something or studying something. Mm-hmm. But man, 
I have one of these vacuums where you can see all the shit you collect. And I don't know why, but every day there's more shit in there after I <laughs> vacuuming. I'm like, I just vacuumed yesterday. I'll, oh, where did this stuff come from? Oh my gosh. Fascinating. That is fascinating. And yeah, I, I think it's a good reminder, like little, little things off your like to-do list that make you feel accomplished. I think, yeah, that's awesome. Everyone vacuum after you listen to this podcast. You'll feel so much better about your life. I guarantee I'm gonna, it. I'm going to do that now too, because sometimes I get in this thing of like power cleaning. It's amazing. Yeah. But Hills, we're drifting. We're drifting. No, that's okay. I think, I think I even just want to end this here because, uh, yeah, I think we've had a lot of good little nuggets. We don't need it to be terribly long. So I want to know how many grams of carbohydrate you ingest per hour during a hundred mile run. And I want to know if you primarily rely on that carbohydrate or if you use the mixed macronutrient profile. That's a good question. So I generally, huh, ironically, I use scratch labs. <laughs> um, so during a longer race, I've usually used, um, uh, rice cakes. So a mix between gummies, um, like the scratch gummies, the energy chews and rice cakes. Um, I like the rice cakes because it's savory and the energy chews can be sometimes too sweet later in the race. But usually I try to average about 200 calories. Um, those are primarily from carbohydrates. I usually, I usually, um, um, calories per hour. I try to aim that in, um, Perfect between that and obviously a mix between um like physical like chewing calories and like with um hydration mix and stuff yeah. like that so you should have it pretty dialed still 80 calories per every 500 mils and you're probably yeah. sweating out depending upon the temperature anywhere from half a liter to a liter and a half per hour yeah yeah and exactly and when it's more humid i have to be like maybe more cognizant of drinking something that's a little bit saltier, especially like halfway through the race, like eight hours in, 10 hours in. But the nature um, of it is, is if you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. Yep. And that's the thing is drinking to thirst in an ultra is really important, not over, over drinking or overcompensating. Yeah. And then making sure that you're like, you're not going hungry and that like, if you feel yourself like bonking, I mean, I know that feeling pretty well. Like I need to make sure that I'm staying on top of nutrition. Um, Usually I don't really eat, I, I eat like fat or something. Like if I have a Parmesan rice, rice cake. Yeah. If it's um, naturally occurring in the food and it adds to the flavor and the taste. Exactly. That's for satiation because I actually can't digest exogenous like fat and protein sources during a race. Yeah. Does so, it make you your butthole? Wait. Yeah, it does actually. And you don't want that. You don't want that. It's throwing whole hills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's no. great. Look yeah. in a nutshell. There yeah. you go. All well, right. you, you taught me that. Well, I didn't teach you anything. I just made recommendations. And what you're really good about is you're good about practicing and mm -hmm. experimenting and being consistent. Nice job, Hills. Well, thanks, Alan. Nice job. All right. You go eat with French people now. Okay. I will have a, I'll have a baguette for you. And yeah. thanks so much for being on here. A croissant for me as well. Rate yeah. it. Rate it smell it you know maybe even like if if like let's say you break a windshield in your car just take paper duct tape it and then take a croissant and rub it on the paper and then <laughs> the will make it clear and then you'll be able to see oh that's a really good call and actually alan there's a bakery like downstairs from my apartment get mad yeah mad it's like it smells so good when i walk down the stairwell it's amazing all right so if you ever need an escape to Annecy, come visit D'accord. Merci. Bonjour.
<rire> Au revoir. Merci beaucoup. OK. Thank <laughs> you. Thanks for joining us this week on the Train Right podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to visit our website at trainright.com slash podcast. You can find social links and more information from our guests. And you can also subscribe to the podcast so you never miss a show. You can leave us a rating on iTunes there too. Hope you guys tune in next week.